So Becky and I ended up having a pretty good week. I'll have to tell you though, on Monday at about 4 o'clock, we thought this could be a terrible week. Monday at 4 o'clock, we thought this could be a week that would change the trajectory of our life and that it would be a really hard week to follow. See, on Monday morning, Becky went for her routine mammogram, the kind of routine you do that quite often when you're a woman and you get, think, oh, nothing of it. But about 2 in the afternoon, the doctor called and said, yeah, something doesn't look too good here. There seems to be a lump and we need to kind of investigate further. We need to get you in as soon as possible to do a man, or to do a ultrasound. So as you can imagine, that's not a phone call that you like to receive. And some of you I know have received phone calls like that. So we had three days to wonder before Thursday afternoon when they could get her in what was going to happen. It was during that three days that Becky and I kind of did something that we normally don't do. Normally, we would tell everybody, please pray for us, send out a lot of prayer alerts, pray for us. But both of us seemed to get really quiet. We spent a lot of time with just the Lord one-on-one, just seeking Him, praying some together, and just pouring our heart out to God. And you know what it's like when you worry about a bad report? you got to protect your mind from going down those roads of the worst-case scenario. And so we just did a lot of being quiet, just kind of sitting in the presence of God for His comfort and His peace. Well, fortunately, on Thursday, we got a good report. Fortunately, they're like, nope. This looks like nothing. It's just a cyst. It'll probably go away on its own in the next few weeks. You don't need to worry about it at all. The exact prayer that we've been praying all week. And as you can imagine, we were happy and we're excited and we leave the doctor's office with great ideas. What are we going to do to celebrate? What's we going to do to have fun? What are we going to have to have dinner? And you know, that whole topic you have when you go to celebration mode. And we were happy. We're like kind of kids on Christmas when your parents gave you exactly what you wanted. And as I drove away from the parking lot, I kind of got quiet and I was just thanking God and by myself and just thanking Him for what He had done and how He answered the prayer. And, and I got started to wonder, how would I have responded if the doctor gave us a report that we didn't want to hear? What would my response have been if that nurse, instead of coming in the room and saying, hey, I got good news for you, if she said, I have news you don't want to hear? How would I have responded? I thought about that a lot because I thought, you know, I don't think I would have left that doctor's office all happy and saying, Beck, how are we going to celebrate tonight? I don't think I would have said, hey, Beck, you know, that's great news. Let's thank God for that report. I don't know if I would have said to God, I love you so much, thank you for answering our prayers. I don't think I would have said that. I began to seriously wonder, how would I have responded if the report was exactly what I did not want to hear? I was surprised how much I thought of that during our celebration. So much that when I got up on Friday morning, that's all I could think about. How would I have responded if that nurse would have said, this doesn't look too good? Now, I shouldn't be surprised that I was so intrigued by the question, how would I respond? Because for the last few weeks, as a church, we've been reading through Paul David David Tripp's devotional on Journey to the Cross. Many of you in the church are reading this together, and it's been a great daily devotional to do through Lent. And on page 75, he asked a question that probably has caught my attention more than any other parts of the book. 
I keep going back to page 75 where he says, often we make the mistake of thinking we have a heart for the Lord when really we're just thankful for him because at that moment he seems to be delivering to us what we have truly set our hearts on. Often we reduce God to just the deliverer of good gifts rather than recognizing him as the ultimate heart-satisfying gift. That question's really intrigued me a lot the last few weeks. See, it's a hard question for me to ask myself is, am I really that grateful that I can be in the presence of God at any time? Or am I just hoping to get something from God that he might answer my prayer request? I mean, do I really believe that the presence of God is the greatest gift I could have? That Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the greatest gift I could have? Or am I just hoping he answers my latest prayer request? I've sat with that question a lot during this last three weeks. I've enjoyed this time of Lent. I think all of you that are reading this book that I've heard of have really enjoyed this book. And for some of you know, just a little plug here on Wednesday nights, we've been meeting as a Zoom to have a conversation to discuss this book. And if you haven't been part of that and you have time on Wednesday night, I'd encourage you to join us. It's been a great opportunity to sit around with, behind a camera with other people talking about this book and what part of the book has interest you and what part of the book is God speaking to you through. It's been kind of comforting to listen to other people wrestle with different parts of the book as I wrestle with one part of the book, and it's, it's been kind of a beautiful gift to sit with other people. And it seems like a lot of the, uh, the, what I hear from people is how much that book has really impacted them. When you take a, a little chapter each day and read through it, and actually what I've kind of discovered about myself in the last three weeks is I don't really have a good routine in my life to really sit back and say to God, Search my heart. Examine my heart. Am I, you know, I've prayed that prayer of David many times, but I kind of pray it and move on. Where I think this book has encouraged me to kind of get quiet before the Lord and, and see what he shows me, but to take that time out. So actually for me, I've kind of gone off script with that book. Instead of reading one, one of the sections a day, I'm kind of reading one a week and really sitting with that part of the book. So I can really get the most out of it and more out of understanding what God is speaking to me as I try to answer that question. But as I continue to ponder that question, how would I have responded to the doctor, the nurses, I kind of start realizing that I needed to ask a different question. See, a better question would have been is how would Jesus have responded to a tough report? What would the response of Jesus have been if that report would have came back? Because the truth is, my response is pretty predictable in that it's going to be unpredictable. I don't know how I would have responded. I hope I would have responded with some great maturity, but I don't know. It would have been tough to hear something like that. But Jesus' response is very predictable, how he responds in the moments of crisis. See, the Bible is so clear that Jesus is close to the brokenhearted. As he says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. That at the times we feel the most broken, the most crushed, we know that Jesus is near. We know that Jesus is near when he had that bad news. 
And in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. What's the qualification to come to him? That you're carrying a heavy burden. And Jesus says, I want to take that burden from you. In the past few weeks, we've looked in this series and we've really focused on the character of Christ. This character of this man that has great compassion and great gentleness towards us. That God sent him to be our friend, to be our advocate, to be our intercessor, to come alongside of us and surround us so he can guard us on this journey that we have. The Bible also lists other roles that Jesus has. It talks about Jesus being our prophet and our priest and our king. And I think we understand Jesus as a king because we understand leadership and authority and that he's the one who sets the rules and we follow him and we obey. And I think we understand to some degree Jesus being a prophet, that Jesus is the word of God and Jesus speaks to us through the word of God. I think we understand that. But when it gets to the role of Jesus as a high priest, I think we get a little lost. We don't know exactly what that means. So even if you grew up in a Catholic tradition or maybe the Episcopal Church where they called their pastors a priest, it's still far different from what the role of a high priest is. So what is the role of a high priest? What does a high priest do? See, in order to understand that, I think we have to understand that the story of the gospel is that Jesus responds to all of our needs. That the story of the gospel is that God knows our needs before we have them and he responds to them. The story of the gospel is that in the face of adversity, in the face of sin, in the face of discouragement, I am going to struggle. That I will be defeated. In the face of the reality of the worlds, I will be defeated. And the message of the Bible is that God has not called me to be self-sufficient or self-reliant. Instead, the message of the Bible is that I am supposed to be completely reliant on the one who created me. And the message of the Bible is not that as I mature in my relationship with Christ, I outgrow my need for Christ. Instead, the message of the Bible is as I grow in my need for Christ, I grow in my knowledge of my dependence on Christ. And actually, as I mature, I become more and more dependent on Christ. The message of the Bible can be stated like this. I'm going to use another Paul David Tripp quote that I've loved in this journey. He says, you and I are a collection of weaknesses held together by grace. That you and I are a collection of weaknesses held together by grace. I mean, that's a beautiful picture of who we are and our relationship with Christ that we don't have to hide and say we don't have weaknesses, but we acknowledge our weaknesses and our dependency on Christ. See, it's a good description of our life that we never lose our need for grace, but our need for grace matures and grows. See, we're all weak and we all struggle. None of us are self-sufficient. But we follow the one who is full of grace so that our times of greatest need, we have grace. I think one of the things that we learn about this Lent season is the seriousness of sin in our life. That we learn that huge, enormous weight in the consequences of sin. That as we take time to pause during Lent and we reflect on sin and separation, it's good for us to do. Because it's only through recognizing the seriousness of sin that we can totally appreciate 
the miraculous work of salvation that Jesus did for us. See, every church and every denomination, we, we have our own theology of sin, or our own description of sin. For many in the Reformed tradition, we call this theology of sin this, the, the total depravity. In other traditions, like maybe the Wesleyans or, or John Wesley, he, he would refer to it as total corruption or entire deprivation. I think most churches do agree on the theology of total depravity. Let me give you a little snapshot of what that really means. I could probably go on for a week to talk about it, but a little quick picture of the seriousness of sin that's important for us to understand. See, the, co the, the core teaching of total depravity is that sin impacts and, and affects everything in the world. That it affects our body and our soul and our spirit. That everything in the world has been impacted by sin. That nothing escapes the seriousness of sin. It will influence our personalities, will influence my health, it will influence my relationship with God. That every part of us is impacted by sin. See, the New Testament goes so far to say that because of sin, we are in bondage without a relationship with Christ. The New Testament goes so far to say is that we are slaves to our evil impulses and desires of our own hearts. And that there's no way of escaping that. See, because of sin, without God's grace, none of us would seek God on our own. We need God's grace to give us conviction of sin and to give us a desire to live in a new, different way. We need God's grace to believe in Jesus and to repent. See, there's not one of us in this room or one of us online that would actually wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I think today would be a good day to be a Christian. None of us would do that on our own. Instead, that's a gift that God would give us, the gift of salvation and the desire to turn away from the way we're living and turn and live for Christ. And as we grow in Christ, we recognize that we don't need just His grace the day we got saved, but we continually need Him to pour out His grace because our reactions are unpredictable. How we respond to things in the world is very unpredictable. It's hard to hear sometimes the seriousness of sin and how much it has impacted our life, but as I said earlier, it's important for us to understand that so we understand the gift of grace and salvation that Jesus has given to us. And the gift that Jesus has given to us that he would become our high priest. That not only is he our prophet and our, and our king, but he is our high priest. I think sometimes I said we don't totally understand that role of Jesus being a priest. In Hebrews 4 verse 15, it says it this way. It says, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Here, there we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. So what does a high priest do? 
if we lived 2,000 years ago, would totally understand what a high priest did because that was part of the Jewish culture. And in Hebrews 5, 1 through 4, it says, every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sin. And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sin as well as theirs. And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for the work, just as Aaron was. See, the high priest was a person that was called by God to represent a morally compromised people to God and to restore the relationship with God. See, because our biggest need as individuals is our relationship with God, to have that relationship with restored. And once our relationship is restored, we can come in the presence of God and find our restoration of our own heart. So God's chosen people in the Old Testament were the Israelites. And they had a big problem. They could not be in the presence of God because of sin in their life. Because of their sin, they were separated from God. So you read in the book of Deuteronomy that talks about God is a consuming fire. It talks about in Deuteronomy 9, verse 3, it says, God is like a devouring fire. See, the reality of God is because of his holiness and his purity. If anything unholy comes in his presence, it will be completely burned by a fire. Not because God wants to be so destructive, but because of his beauty of his holiness is so beautiful that anything sinful comes in contact with it, it will not survive. So what does a sinful group of people do to have a relationship with God? Some of you might remember the tabernacle, the tent that God would dwell in, that he would live in among, amongst the Israelites. In the middle of the, where the Israelites lived in their tents, there would be this big tent called the tabernacle. And inside of that tent was a, a room called the Holies of Holies, and that's where God lived. Half the room was divided into the Holies of Holies, and once a year, they would allow the high priest to come into that room and make atonement for the sins of the people. So once a year, the Israelites would, would offer animal sacrifices or other gifts in order to um, atone for their sins, and the high priest would go into that inner sanctuary and offer the gifts before God. He would come into the, and I should have put a picture in your notes. I didn't think about it till now. Um, he would come into that with an with a offering of the blood that was sacrificed from the animals. He would pour it on the mercy seat of God. And in that room was a candle that would be lit, and he would burn incense, and then there's a table with bread on it. And the high priest would have to go into that, that tent once a year to make atonement for the people's sins. But because God is so holy, the high priest could never see God in there. So there was a veil that separated, that divided the room in half. On one side there was God, on the other side the high priest would be able to come in. So the high priest had the special duty that once a year that they would go before God to repent for the sins of the people, to restore people's relationship with God. But as you can see, that's once a year. You had to wait another year to get your sins forgiven by God. But that was the system that God had set up at the time. So you kind of wonder, well, what about the high priest? How can he go in there? How can he be in the presence of God and not burn up himself? Because obviously that high priest isn't a pure person. The high priest is a sinful man. If the holiness of God burns a priest up, how can that priest actually walk into that room? And who would want to be that priest? That's a pretty high risk to take. 
So if you read through Exodus 28, and I'm not going to read through that because it would take a while and, and I wouldn't have enough time, but there's a lot of descriptions of what the high priest had to do in order to come in before the presence of God. And one of the things that the high priest had to do was that they had to wash themselves. They had to go through this purification process of even repenting for their own sins and taking these special purification washes or baths that you would call them. And also when the high priest came into the temple there, they would have to burn special incense and they would have to light the candle. But then Exodus 28 spends a lot of time talking about the clothing that the high priest would have to wear when they came into that sanctuary. Every part, every piece of the clothing that they wore was really significant. It represented righteousness. It represented holiness. It represented purity. It represented strength. And the high priest would have to put these clothing on as sort of kind of like covering up their own sinfulness with these clothing that represented purity. But one significant, two significant pieces that the high priest would wear, and there's more, but I'm not going to talk all about them today. Two significant pieces that he would wear is one, a big breastplate. And this heavy breastplate, it almost looked like military armor. And on there, there's 12 stones, and it represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It represented God's chosen people. It was like the names of the Israelites were placed on his heart. And that was a picture that the high priest would go before God with carrying the people on his heart. And on his shoulders, he wore these big shoulder pads, and the name of the Israelites were written on his shoulder pads as well is a symbol that he's carrying the burdens of the people. So you see this beautiful picture of the high priest going before God with the, heart, with the, the, the people on his heart and heavy on his shoulder carrying their weight, but clothed in righteousness and strength and beauty. And every piece of clothing that that high priest would wear <clears throat> symbolizes perfection. It symbolizes the one eternal high priest that is to come, that's Jesus Christ. Every piece of clothing that the high priest wore was the symbolism of what Christ would do when he would come. So everything that the high priest did just pointed to what Jesus would come and do someday. And see, that's why we no longer have a high priest, because Jesus became the ultimate high priest. He became the ultimate one who offered the sacrifice before God once and for all. In Hebrews 5, verse 5 to 10, it says this, That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become a high priest. No, he was chosen by God who said, you are my son. Today I have, I have become your father. And another passage, God said to him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could receive him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who would obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus comes a perfect high priest, and the 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that, in him, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
But Jesus doesn't have to wear the garments that the high priest wore. Jesus doesn't have to wear the garments that signify perfection and holiness and strength and honor. Jesus doesn't have to wear the breastplate with the names of his chosen people on his chest or the name of the Israelites on his shoulders. Jesus becomes the high priest, but he's completely naked. Jesus' body becomes the ultimate sacrifice. See, crucifixion wasn't just any form of death back in that day. It was explicit, and it was humiliating. The goal of crucifixion is to make a spectacle out of the victim being crucified. In fact, many times when they were crucified people, they would do it in some of the most heavy trafficked areas of the city because they wanted people to see. And the person would hang on the cross naked to shame them. So if we did crucifixions in Grand Rapids, you'd probably do it at a busy intersection so everybody that drives by could see. And that is what they did in that culture. So Jesus would hang on that cross completely naked because his body was the ultimate sacrifice. And we remember when Adam and Eve were created, they walked in the garden with God and they walked naked and they were not ashamed because they walked in complete innocence. And once sin entered the world, it tells us that Adam and Eve recognized their sin and recognized their shame and their guilt and they were afraid. And it's interesting that Jesus goes to the cross in complete nakedness, which is the exact same place where he found Adam and Eve. So you remember after Adam and Eve sinned, what did the first thing they did? They tried to cover themselves up. They were embarrassed. They didn't want people to see that part of them. So they strategically covered themselves up. And when God came into the garden, he made a sacrifice of animals and gave them the animal skin so they could cover up with something that would last longer. But that wasn't good enough for God. He wanted something permanent that would cover their nakedness. And that's why he went to the cross. As Adam and Eve. As naked. So he could suffer the shame and the humiliation for Adam and Eve. See, the cross was supposed to be humiliating for Jesus. It was supposed to make a shameful display of Jesus. That's what the people that killed Jesus wanted. But it didn't work. See, instead, Jesus made a public spectacle of sin and shame and guilt and condemnation because he overcame shame. See, nakedness is a sign of guilt and shame, but it's also a sign of innocence. And so Jesus came and he hung on the cross completely innocent for our sins so that he could atone for the sins that we have committed. Out of respect for Jesus and the cross today, we usually cover Jesus up and for logical reasons, 
movies probably couldn't be produced if we showed them that accurately. And it's probably smart to do in churches when you have Jesus on a cross. And so we understand it from a contextualized reason. But I think sometimes it's important for us to pause and to remember that Jesus did go to that cross completely naked for us. That he went to that cross completely vulnerable. Because when we are going through our Lent season and we're getting serious about our life and examining our life, it's important for us to remember is that have we exposed all areas of our life to the cross? Have we exposed every part of our life or our sin or our shame? Have we exposed that to the cross? Or do we strategically cover parts of us that we don't want anybody to see? I mean, do we really believe that Jesus bore every one of our sins on that cross? Every one of them. And so now we have the comfort to know we can be completely exposed before Christ. Do we really believe and understand that we have a high priest that has represented us before God and their sins have been atoned for? See, when Jesus died on the cross, something very beautiful happened. Matthew 27, verse 50 tells us that when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That in that sanctuary, that what separated us from the presence of God, that curtain was ripped when Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And we see that significant because now we have Jesus as our high priest constantly atoning for our sins. He did it once and for all. And that we can live free from the consequences of sin, but we can also live in the presence of God. We have access to the presence of God. As Hebrews 10, 19 says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is, that is his body. That through Jesus' death on the cross, he's made every provision for us to live in his presence. And that is the greatest gift that we can have. To live in his presence, to have our hearts transformed by being in Jesus' presence. No longer do we have to wait like the Israelites once a year to come before God. But our sins are atoned for. I mean, that's the beautiful gift that we're coming into as we look forward to Easter when we light everything back up and see the beauty of Christ lighting up the world with his love and compassion. But as we keep blowing these candles out and it gets darker and darker, it is such a good reminder for us. Have we exposed every part of our life to the cross in repentance? In asking God to cover those 
parts of our life that we've tried to cover ourselves just like Adam and Eve. I love the invitation of Lent. I love the invitation of Lent of let's kind of deal with this stuff we try to cover now so when we come to Easter, we can like celebrate and have a good time. And to kind of be like Peter when he says, now we live with great expectation. Let's come on Easter and say, now we live in great expectation. And remembers Peter's words of, so let's be truly glad. That joy comes in the repentance. So pray with me and Jake will lead us in our last song. So God, I come before you today, Lord, thanking you for your son. We thank you for your son, the high priest, that would go before us and do for us what we could not do on our own. We thank you for the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice that you made of your, for your son. That you exposed him completely to cover every one of our sins. God, we thank you for the gift that we can now live in your presence. God, help us to understand the reality of what Jesus did on the cross. But God, I ask you as a church, and Lord, it's that you would help us, Lord, as we can kind of go through the last couple weeks of Lent to take really serious your invitation to get right with you, to examine our lives. And to have you root out anything that's ugly. Because God, we want to come on Easter morning and celebrate as we light this wreath, this candles up. So God, I pray for your grace over this family. Over this community, Lord, I pray for your grace and your mercy. That you would help us to do the things that we're normally not inclined to do on our own. Normally, we'd say, I don't want to look at the ugliness in my life. Normally, we'd say, let's just cover that area and make it a little bit more sanitized. God, I pray that you'd not allow us to do that. But Lord, you'd give us the endurance and the boldness to get honest. Would you speak to us, Lord, and help us to follow really close in the next couple weeks. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that you give us power when we feel really, really weak. And I pray, Lord, that you'd infuse this body with your power. obedience. Lord, I pray that you'd give us humility where we need it. God, we thank you for your faithfulness.